From Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. With over 100 witnesses and nine weeks of hearings, the commission into one of the greatest failures in the history of the Australian government has already given us unforgettable insight into the thinking of our public servants and leading politicians. But there are still questions to be answered, like how could so many find themselves in lockstep behind a policy that was unlawful? Today, senior reporter for the Saturday paper, Rick Morton, on what we learned from inside the commission's hearings. It's Tuesday, March 14. So, Rick, the final week of public hearings at, at the Royal Commission into Robo-Debt has just ended. And I suppose the first question I have for you is, uh, how are you feeling? I am glad it's over from a really personal point of view, um, but I'm glad we had it. Now, I think I was trying to count up the number of hours of hearings we've had in public, and it's close to 200 hours, if not more. We've heard a lot of evidence and we've started to get to the truth of this thing for the first time. So I think there's a sense of relief from a lot of people who've been waiting for this moment and a little bit of nerves now waiting for the final report. Mm. And I think one of the most shocking things to hear as the Royal Commission has gone on is just how the ways in which ministers and, and public servants and everyone who is involved kind of ended up all together in lockstep behind this policy that at the end of the day was unlawful. So where do you think that all of that began? One of the excellent achievements of this commission is to really clearly spell out that robo-debt from the very beginning was the expression of a political desire. And that was a political desire that met with this idea that was already percolating in the public service. And so when you get these two forces coming together, you get robo-debt and you get the saga that we've been living with now for years. And one of the crucial moments came in uh, January 2015 when Scott Morrison was only a month really into his portfolio as Minister for Social Services. In our Canberra studio is Scott Morrison, the man who stopped the boats and is now going to stop who knows what. We'll find out. G'day, Scott. How are you? G'day, Graham. Mate, all the best for your health this year. And he was talking about a crackdown on welfare. Now, who, who are you going to crack down on? Because a bloke like you is not going to sit there and do nothing. Now, does that mean that, that, that anyone on the dole has got to look out? Well, anyone who's is trying to rip it off does. Anyone who's trying to rip off the welfare system because every welfare... Bear... And, you know, putting a tough new welfare cop on the beat. So, there does need to be a strong welfare cop on the beat, and I'll certainly be looking to do that. And it was very deliberate language, and it set off a chain of events still being resolved today. At 2pm, January 22nd, the Department of Human Services Deputy Secretary Melissa Golightly emailed just a link of that full interview to her boss, the Secretary of the Department, Catherine Campbell. Ms Campbell, um, I'm not sure if you took an oath for an affirmation, but whatever it was, it still binds you, you'll understand. Yes, Commissioner. Thank you. And Catherine Campbell is really an important person to keep in mind here because she will return again and again and again throughout this whole saga. You recall uh, that Ms Golightly sent you an email in respect of that interview and a link to uh, the full interview about two o'clock that day. Yes. And it was put to her this week in evidence by Justin Gregory KC, the senior counsel assisting the Royal Commission, that that was a significant moment. Um, and the 
the statement of the minister, I take it, was significant to you and Ms Golightly because it indicated the direction that Minister Morrison wanted to go in respect of uh, uh, his leadership of the portfolio generally. Yes. And it showed that Catherine Campbell and Melissa Golightly, the two most senior people in the Department of Human Services, were very, very in tune, or at least wanting to keep abreast of exactly what Scott Morrison wanted. And they make good on that promise, don't they, to crack down on welfare. And We know that the public service had this proposal that had been brewing for a long time to use algorithms to project debts, and they turned to that, didn't they? Yeah. So Catherine Campbell met with um, Scott Morrison essentially by accident because Maurice Payne, her Minister for Human Services, was on leave in December uh, 2014 when Morrison became Minister. So it was Catherine Campbell that first briefed him and it was in that first briefing where he said, I want to look at welfare compliance. Now, she goes back to her people, including Melissa Golightly, and says, bring forth what you've got. What are you working on? Shake the tree. And they did that. They shook the tree. Now, it turns out in the middle in the bowels of the Department of Human Services, and they used an algorithm and income averaging using that pay-as-you-go tax office data to tell them whether there might be a debt, maybe? Now, this proposal was floated up the chain pretty early on uh, in, you know, the end of 2014, and we know from this Royal Commission that the Department of Social Services got legal advice from one of their lawyers, Anne Portford, and that legal advice was really clear. You can't do this. It's, it's illegal income averaging in this way is not consistent with the legislation. Now, despite all of this, 10 days after that Morrison interview, the one that was flagged by Melissa O'Leary to Catherine Campbell, Campbell met with the then Human Services Minister, Maurice Payne, who's back from leave. This is January 2015 still. The senator made an entry in her notebook that indicated the discussion had turned to Morrison and that welfare crackdown. And her notes say, what can we do without having to legislate? Now, this is crucial because, if you remember, at the time, the Senate was a bit ratty and it was difficult to get stuff through and they didn't want to fuss around. They wanted something that could start immediately. On the other hand, they should have known that Robinette was unlawful unless the legislation was changed because they were told about it. And Scott Morrison himself was told about it in the first brief that he received with the proposals that he had asked Catherine Campbell to go out and find. Um, and he circled pursue, which was one of the options given to ministers, pursue or do not pursue. And, and that was that. And everything that followed that moment can be seen through the light of the panic of highly paid and quote-unquote responsive public servants who morphed into political servants themselves by their own considerable ambition. And they were willing to ignore or actively cover up, as we've heard, a program that stalked and tricked vulnerable people by the hundreds of thousands into paying back debts they never owed. Well, let's talk a bit more about these people, these senior public servants, so people like Catherine Campbell. How are they thinking about the program at this point as it begins to take shape? How are they considering what the implications are of, of actually going forward with RoboDebt? Yeah, it's a really good question because despite giving evidence that she was uh, paying close attention to every single budget proposal, Catherine Campbell says she just never noticed that suddenly any reference to income averaging, which was the part that made this thing illegal, had been removed. But the policy parameters themselves had never changed. So they changed the language in the brief, in the new policy proposal, but they never changed the actual policy. I was not responsible for the passage of the legislation and we had relied on DSS's advice about the legislation. 
Now, she's been essentially saying, look, I'm the secretary. I trusted the advice of the Department of Social Services. I trusted my deputy secretary, Melissa Golightly. She assumed that Melissa Golightly and the deputy secretary at DSS had worked together and that suddenly the proposal really had changed so that they no longer needed to change the legislation. I am just trying to understand what your position was. Um, did you think that averaging was just legal across the board? No. Well, then why was it legal for people who hadn't responded? Now, Commissioner Catherine Hines wasn't really having much of that because she's pretty well versed in disbelief already at these hearings and she expressed some more of it where she said, you know, these were your department's customers. And you're responsible for the impact on, we don't quite know the number of customers because 866,000 interventions doesn't necessarily equate to that many customers, but we can probably assume half a million. Was it not a concern to you that it would have this kind of impact on a customer base of that size? How could you not worry about that? How could you not wonder how this was to be done and whether it would be done? And Campbell just kept repeating this key line of hers as if, really, genuinely, as if it were a prayer. These were matters that were discussed with DSS. I did not discuss them in detail with DSS at this time. OK, thank you. She says she falsely believed it was being used as a last resort and that people wouldn't receive any fake debt if they'd just updated their information with Centrelink. And Commissioner Holmes was blunt and said... And if they didn't contact, it was just... It served them right, did it? No. Well, how did it work? She was repeatedly asked by Justin Gregory KC, why did you persist with the scheme that you knew to be wrong even if you thought it was legal? And she kept saying... Can you repeat that question, Mr Gregory? I'm having difficulty following this question. Mr Gregory, could you break the question into parts to allow me to better understand what you're asking? It was agonising. It was truly, truly agonising. We'll be here a very long time if you don't answer it. And Campbell just kept offering those variations of, I relied on the legal advice. Gregory, unimpressed, went on. He said, I don't doubt it. But it doesn't mean you have to implement a system where you actually know that it might lead to the recovery of money from people who don't owe a debt. And eventually, finally, Campbell just said, I didn't turn my mind to it. Which really is the only answer they can give, which is another way of saying we just didn't care. We'll be back in a moment. Hi, I'm Benjamin Law, one of the journalists from the highly acclaimed podcast by the powerhouse, 100 Climate Conversations. Join us as we speak to 100 Australians like Simon Holmes-Accord, Vina Sajwala and Ronnie Khan, who are responding to climate change issues across clean energy, green manufacturing, food waste and more. Subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Anne Enright is used to receiving praise for her depictions of family, but in her latest novel, she wants readers to know there's a lot more going on. In this book, there's a level that I feel underappreciated, <laughs> sadly. Poor <laughs> underappreciated Anne Enright. <laughs> You've no idea how I suffer. I'm Michael Williams, and this week on Read This, I sit and talk with Anne about her new book, The Wren, The Wren. Find it wherever you listen. 
And uh, now you're calling Mr. Robert? I call Mr. Robert. Mr. Robert, will you take an oath or an affirmation? I'll take an oath, Commissioner. Thank you. Rick, we heard some pretty interesting testimony from the former Government Services Minister, Stuart Robert. Could you just go back and tell me a bit about when Stuart Robert actually enters the picture in terms of RoboDebt and and how it was that he ended up coming before the Commission? Yeah, so Stuart Robert's a very interesting case study. Um, You're presently a member of the House of Representatives, Mr Robert? I am. He was the Minister for Government Services from May 2019 until early 2021. So in the final stages of RoboDebt, Stuart Robert is fully in the frame. He is the minister responsible for implementing it. I can take you back, Mr Scott, if I may. Sure. Now, Stuart Robert is fascinating and unique, I would say, in all of the witnesses, because not only does he have a bad memory and doesn't recall things when it would be convenient to the commission for him to have a recall. I do not recall this being briefed to me. I don't recall my department saying on the 4th of July, we have an AGS advice. But he's got a very good memory when it comes to his own heroics because he claimed the credit for stopping RoboDebt. He says it was him that did it. When the SG advice arrived, my department had had it for seven or eight weeks. I had it for two hours before I walked straight into the Prime Minister's office, unannounced, put it down and said, we need to stop this. Honestly, it was some of the most bizarre hours of testimony at this entire Royal Commission because even while he was there giving this amazing swashbuckling story about marching into the Prime Minister's office with the legal advice, slamming it down on the table and saying, we need to stop this, while he's giving that evidence in that previous week, we'd heard the precise opposite. Okay, and so could we kind of unpack some of the contradictions between what Stuart Robert is saying now versus what he was actually saying when RoboDebt was still active. What was he saying to the public when he was a minister? Yeah, it's a pretty fascinating story, I think. So on the on the 14th of November 2019, Stuart Robert gives a speech at the National Press Club and he's asked a question by Paul Cart from The Guardian. If you're so confident RoboDebt's legal, why has Centrelink never defended it in court? And up until that point, they never had. And Robert gets up and at first he tries not to answer this question at all and then gets quite grumpy and says, okay, if you want an answer, I'll give you one. And he gets up there and he says, you know, Robodet is absolutely appropriate. He says the system is totally appropriate. But at the hearings, on the stand, under oath, I might add, he says something completely different. Could I ask you, Mr Robert, to turn to your pay uh, tab 61 in volume 2? Exhibit 6296, doc ID SRO.001.001.0141. National Press Club speech. Yes. Now, according to his own evidence, he was fully, formally, properly briefed on November 7. That's when he walked into the Prime Minister's office and said, we need to stop RoboDebt a full week before the National Press Club. And yet he still gets up after knowing that RoboDebt is illegal and he lies. Right. Did he say why he did that? He lies because he says there was no alternative but to lie. I kept my words very tight because I knew the decision had been made. I knew I could not communicate anything about it. And that he knew he was lying because it was his job. It's a dreadful place for a minister to ever be in. That's why I tried to deflect at first. He said, I was a cabinet minister. Cabinet solidarity demanded that I back the position of the government. And essentially, it was my job to lie. He said, that's just how the Westminster system works. And it's a dutiful cabinet minister, ma'am. That's what we do. Misrepresent things to the Australian public. 
Uh, I wouldn't respectfully put it that way, because until such time, Commissioner, as I've got the legal opinion, I could be wrong. So there's all this political pressure, and it just it paints a very grim and a very real story, one that is almost beyond doubt now, which is that nothing else mattered except the money. Mm. And so when you try and assign responsibility here, you know, you've got the government, the mentality in the public service, the ministers, the the lack of any sort of one person taking responsibility. And after sitting in those hearings and, and hearing this testimony, how do you kind of grapple with the, the question of accountability here? They're all responsible. There is no one person to blame for RoboDebt. And I know that people have wanted one person to be responsible. And I know a lot of people have wanted Scott Morrison to be responsible. And Scott Morrison was deeply, deeply involved in this whole thing from the very beginning. But he is not nearly alone. There is a cast of dozens of people from government ministers, yes, who set almost like the ambient mood music for the destruction of people's lives through welfare crackdown. So that's kind of the tone they set, right? And over many years, the public service has been sharpened into the tip of a spear that is held and wielded by the people in power. And they serve those people. And Renee Leon gave evidence that secretaries of departments who were more, quote unquote, responsive to the government agenda, particularly under the coalition government, were rewarded. And those who weren't were sacked. She was sacked. She was the one that gave Stuart Robert the advice that ended RoboDebt. And she was sacked. So there is a cast of dozens of people across both the political sphere and the public service. Every one of the people who designed this thing knew the debts weren't accurate. Do you know who did know that the debts weren't accurate? Centrelink's frontline workers. They were getting calls from people threatening suicide. They were getting more calls than ever. They were losing social workers at a rate of knots because it was devastating to them to have their entire world flipped upside down and have to deal with the vicarious trauma of what this system was doing to people. And they knew one look at their client record and they could tell that Centrelink had been averaging their income over an entire year where their income was not even over an entire year. This is a complex web of deception and moral cowardice that led to this thing happening and that's what the Commission has to try and intervene on. And just on the idea of closure, I mean, you spoke about the people who were pursued by the scheme, the people who were calling up frontline workers talking about suicide. And, and I know that you've spoken to, to many of these people over the years and, and their families who suffered under robo-debt. And for a long time, I think many of them were sort of, they were denied answers about what had happened. That's obviously changed with the Royal Commission. So what has this commission meant to them to have the people involved actually forced to answer questions about what they knew? Yeah, I think people would discount that. But for the people who are actually caught up in this, or who lost loved ones to this, they were not just lied to, but they were deceived in an incredibly complicated way over many years. And what people wanted was to hear that their instincts were right, that this was never okay, this was never correct, mathematically, legal, ethically, morally, even just purely as government administration, even if you wanted to be as cruel as they were, the administration of this thing was an absolute abject failure. So at every level, the government failed. And all the way through, they said there's nothing to see here. They were actively, actively misled. So this is the kind of stuff that victims were dealing with. And it's just, it's a real, it's hard to put into words, I think, the 
the explanatory power of a Royal Commission to tell you that you were right to be alarmed. And that's kind of the evidence we got from Matthew Thompson, who, you know, he said that we were made to feel like we were welfare cheats. You know, he was hit with $11,000 in a rubber debt. And he said, I have such, I have such little faith in the system. And that is the real burden that they bore, was this idea that they were the ones who were defective. They were not the ones who were defective. There was nothing wrong with them. They were right. Their instincts were right. They did the right thing. They reported their income, as was always required by Centrelink. They always did the right thing. It was the government that was wrong. The government was defective, and cynically so, and deliberately so. And now the people know. And I think once you know something, it is harder for people to deceive you again. I think that is the real, the real value of this Royal Commission. Rick, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Ruby. As a 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points. Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. Also in the news today, Saudi oil company Aramco has posted a record profit for any publicly listed company in history. The oil company posted a yearly profit of 243 billion Australian dollars, fueled by rising energy prices following the war in Ukraine. And a man has been found dead after a 10-hour police siege in Townsville from Sunday right through to the early hours of Monday morning. The siege began after gunshots were fired at nearby houses and cars. The 50-year-old man was found dead inside the house, with Queensland police still investigating. I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. See you tomorrow.